You're listening to the China Law Podcast, a weekly podcast exploring China's business and financial sectors from a legal perspective. I'm Vincent Chow, a reporter at China Law and Practice. Happy to say that we're back after a break for the holiday season. Wishing all our listeners a happy new year. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, welcome. And for those who regularly listen, we're grateful for your support, and we hope that will continue in 2021. Today's episode is a special one, the first of two special episodes looking back at the year just gone by in two major areas of the law. 2020 was an eventful one, to say the least, for U.S.-China business and investment, in large part due to the Trump administration's continued campaign against Chinese companies and investment. Most notably, the Trump administration aggressively introduced new rules and amended existing rules to clamp down on Chinese access to U.S. technology, primarily through export controls and sanctions. The topic of discussion today. So my guests are two experts in U.S. sanctions and export controls: Wendy Weisong and Ali Bernie, partners at Stepton Johnson, based in Hong Kong. Wendy is a former deputy assistant secretary for export enforcement in the Department of Commerce, who previously represented Chinese telecom giant ZTE in their five-year multi-agency investigation in the U.S. Her colleague Ali also has extensive experience in economic sanctions and export controls, having also worked previously in Washington D.C. at the Office of Foreign Assets Control in the Department of Treasury. It was great to chat with both of them again about U.S. export controls and sanctions policies in 2020. From the impact of different lists compiled by the U.S. government on Chinese companies to the specific focus on companies linked to the Chinese military. Wendy Ali, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Vincent. Last time we spoke, it was at your new office in Hong Kong, which was opened at the beginning of 2020. So, Wendy, you're the managing partner at the office, and I'm curious to know how this first year for the office has gone in your view. It's been a really interesting first year of. Steptoe and Johnson here in Hong Kong.、Uh, some folks have said that it was, you know, a very trying time to try and get into the the market、um, right in the middle of all of the U.S. China trade tension and the protests, and then the pandemic. But I think what we found is because、um, export controls and sanctions have been so. Dominating in that trade and tensions between the United States and China, and increasingly bringing in other countries in Asia and, and Hong Kong, it's actually been pretty good.、Uh, and, and in fact, I'm I'm really glad that we were here because so many companies, so many private industry as well as government entities, have sought our advice、um, to be able to understand what's been going on. And what, in your view, has been the dominant regulatory trend when it comes to U.S. technology related? Sanctions and export control policy towards China over the past year. I guess if we were really looking at a dominant regulatory trend, I think it's the fact that the export controls and sanctions lists have really been used to slow down technological advances and economic sanctions from China. Economic sanctions and export controls policy has been an increasing area of what you you really should think of as as economic warfare. And the U.S. government is really using every weapon it has、um, in that arena in very creative and in innovative ways, really beyond、uh, their original purpose and traditional use. If you were going to probably just pick two trends to focus on, one is I would think has been called out by us and by others as the strategic use of lists、um, beyond the old. Old back,、uh, specially designated nationals list, the SDN list that folks have been familiar with, to talk about number of other different lists that have come into play, and I'll, I'll explain that in just a minute. 
But the second regulatory trend, I think, is the more tactical use of complex regulatory amendments, specifically the military end use, uh, end user rule, and the foreign product direct uh, foreign, foreign produced direct product rule. But with regard to the lists, in really in conjunction with some of the the increasingly tightening rules and sanctions. The lists have been used using the language of foreign policy and national security. But when you unwrap and really view those a little bit more critically, uh, there's an economic interest that is being advanced. For example, you'll hear um, the companies that are being named have also been accused of theft of intellectual property, that there is competition in the 5G development or challenges to the U.S. supply chain dominance. And just to focus on one, the BIS entity list has been used very aggressively to cut off telecommunications equipment manufacturers from predominantly their U.S. suppliers, but also suppliers around the globe that have incorporated U.S. software or technology in their plants. And what that effectively does is impedes the company that's listed on the entity list. It, it impedes their economic growth. Um, it doesn't really have a systemic impact on or influence on foreign policy or national security. But with regard to that particular company that's put on that, that list, it really has an enormous impact because they then have to get a, a license for any export of any good software technology that's subject to the EAR. So that's the export administration regulations. It used to be that the entity list was used to prevent diversion uh, of unauth- you know, unauthorized diversions of U.S. origin goods, but it's gone much beyond that. There's also been... Other lists, particularly one called the Communist Chinese um, Military Company List, has, now has 35 names on it, as well as the BIS list of chi- uh, China military end users, which despite their, their names are very different, um, different uh, rationales, underlying rationales, different purposes, different focus, different names. Right. And it's been clear that China's military, military capabilities have been a core focus of the Trump administration over the past year. So, Ali, can you talk a bit more about how that uh, BIS military end user list came about and what it means for those companies listed on it? Sure. The military end user list is, um, is a very interesting list because it sounds very similar to other um, lists that have been promulgated by the U.S. government but has a slightly different impact. This April, the U.S. government revised the military end use rules, which um, basically um, added a definition of middle, military end uses, um, defined a military end user, and added additional items um, that were controlled for military end use. So basically, what it said was, if you're going to export U.S. origin items that are um, certain type of items um, that are controlled for military end use to China and Venezuela and Russia, you needed an export license and certain license exceptions were taken away. Um, Fast forward to um, December, Commerce Department has now released um, what it calls a military end user list, which is quite a broad list of um, Chinese and Russian companies um, that it considers to be military end users and therefore licenses required if you're going to export certain um, controlled items um, to these entities. The interesting part is uh, of this whole um, development 
is that before the final list came out, um, there was a leak of a broader um, list of companies that were going to be on, on the list. So the current list is um, smaller, and it's an interesting comparison to see who was left off the leak list and who was um, left on the list. And there's a lot of conjecture as to why certain people or, or companies did not get added to the list. But perhaps that's a discussion for another time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think, Vincent, one of the things that is so interesting is, you know, how BIS really surgically uh, amended the military end user rule and then and then issued this list um, to really focus on China and to look at that uh, civil military fusion, which pumped a lot of money into the development of technology that, you know, was supposedly for civilian use, but then became more of uh, military use because they could get all of the, the U.S. origin technology and the, the software and things from the United States that they said it was for civilian use. But then it got diverted into the military development, they said, as the basis for changes to the military end use and user rule, because civilian and military was, in the words of BIS, sort of a meaningless distinction. You know, there, there were other countries that were, were affected, but it was really focused and targeted on China. We have to move on to the next question, uh, given our time constraints. But, you know, this this really is a topic that could be discussed all day, given just how many policy developments we've seen in the past year. What I will add is that from my perspective, you know, this past year has really shown me how um, malleable US sanctions and export controls are to be fine-tuned to achieve certain um, desired US policy goals where seemingly small adjustments to export control rules, for example, can have massive implications on global supply chains, simply because of how dominant U.S. tech suppliers are in the world today. And so my next question then is, and we can start with Ali this time, what is the level of support for these policy changes among the the U.S. business community, as well as the the non-U.S., the international business community? And perhaps we can focus on the international business community here in Asia, given that both of you are based here in Hong Kong. Well, I think the business communities um, on both sides of the, I guess, the Pacific, let's say here, have expressed, have publicly said that they do not support these sanctions and export controls. And the reasons are quite clear, right? There's, We live in a, a connected world where it's not a binary um, choice of who is an exporter, who is an importer. Chinese exporters rely on U.S. components and um, U.S. high-tech components, and they feed the whole um, supply chain on both sides. So I think it's been very disruptive. Um, Perhaps the ones that are most likely to benefit um, would be um, European companies that can step in in the middle where they have high-tech components and technologies um, that the Chinese companies don't have access to. Um, and had previously gone to the U.S., but now are going to try and look to source that from Europe. So I guess the disruption to business of these policy changes are quite straightforward. So I'm more interested in asking about how the U.S. agencies, whether they've given some wiggle room for individual companies to be able to navigate these these policy changes. You know, how how have the U.S. agencies gone about doing this? 
In in some examples, in some of the regulations, you're given uh, a grace period that the rule is published as a final rule as opposed to a proposed rule, but there's built in a, a grace period to allow companies to adjust. So just recently, there was a prohibition on U.S. investment in publicly traded securities, and there was a time period given where companies could rearrange their investments to make sure that they could comply. In years past, they used to not publish a rule as final. They would allow a time for comment, and and it would become effective a certain period afterwards. Now they're doing it um, kind of the reverse. And it's, it's made for kind of an awkward uh, period of adjustment. Um, in terms of the agency's responsiveness, you know, we've acted on behalf of a number of organizations where we've compiled questions and requests for guidance on these regulations after they're published. And in to a large extent, uh, the agencies have responded either directly uh, in conference calls participated directly where industry gets to ask the questions that we've already provided to them, or they've published um, responses to frequently asked questions. But, you know, they, the agencies are listening to the companies and, ex, you know, and explaining what those consequences are and trying to adjust. But there's just this lag um, where companies are confused because they don't know exactly what the rules mean. And it's not clear that the agencies did either when they were published. I don't know, Ali, if you want to add something to that. The only thing I'd add is when there was an initial um, leak of the MEU list. So that's the military end user list. There were rumors that that people had used that list to to try and um, um, advocate why they should not be on the list. And and there's questions uh, raised as to why there's a shorter list that actually um, came out. So Obviously, companies that have been affected have, have been in contact with the agencies. Moreover, U.S. exporters, I think, are the ones that, that have um, the best um, contact with the agencies, and they've certainly been involved in, in explaining in depth the long-term effects of some of these rule changes, which might, which might not be as evident to um, the regulators sitting in Washington. Yes, yeah, so the final MEU list has 58 Chinese companies, down from 89 on the leaked draft list, according to the reports at the time. So one of the notable absentees on this finalized list is China's leading aircraft manufacturer, Comac, which was um, reported to have been on the leaked draft list. And perhaps it's no coincidence that Comac managed to get itself removed from the list given its reliance on American suppliers such as uh, GE and Honeywell. Uh, it would be very surprising if these US companies didn't go to bat for its Chinese customer once they saw the reports that Comac was about to be listed. And this is certainly important to recognize because how much of how much the narrative is that the, the Trump administration has basically adopted an all guns blazing approach to sanctions and export controls towards China in recent months. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it has been unresponsive to the complaints and feedback, especially from US companies who do business with those Chinese companies uh, being targeted. So let's look ahead to 2021 then. We're going to have a new president in the White House very soon. So what, in your view, will be the dominant regulatory trend when it comes to uh, U.S. tech-related sanctions and export control policy towards China in the coming year? You know, everybody agrees that there's not going to be probably an immediate lessening of the China-based tech policy in 2021 because there is bipartisan support for a lot of the policy writ large against China. 
But I would predict that you're going to see less use of the BIS export control regulations, and in particular, the entity list in terms of trying to actually influence foreign policy and national security, because the real impact is felt through economic sanctions, you know, where there's where you can enlist financial institutions and in the U.S. financial system to really have a broader impact than just a single company, which is really what happens with the entity list and then only with regard to exports to that company. So I, I think there's going to be more focus on economic sanctions, less focus on export controls um, to achieve those targets that they say that they're you know, really interested in trying to achieve, I think, a decrease in some of the rhetoric and then inviting in more diverse views uh, to inform the regulatory changes that are that are made in foreign policy positions. I think you'll see a, a return to some of the, you know, old China hands um, that have, have been working in this area for decades. The only thing I would add to that is that, um, We'll also see uh, more of a multilateral approach where it is possible. There are certain areas with regard to China where the U.S. and the EU do see eye to eye, and we expect the Biden administration to focus on those areas to get some some results. What might those areas be? You know, where the U.S. and the EU do cooperate is in the areas of human rights and forced labor. And so um, sanctions that focus on those entities and are perceived to be able to send a message to the PRC authorities, I think that's where we'll see, we could see um, some overlap. Obviously, the one area that comes to mind is the is um, Xinjiang, given that there's been UN reports on that, so that'll be easier for the EU to dovetail into. Right, and we've just seen that. Um, forced labor seems to be a major component of the recently agreed uh, EU-China investment deal, um, which still hasn't been finalized yet, certainly. But uh, but, but based on the public statements uh, on both sides, uh, we can expect that to be a major component of the deal. And um, we we uh, based on the reports, China is committed to international uh, uh, committed to upholding international rules surrounding the prohibition of forced labor. Um, so certainly that's an area where EU leaders seem to already be showing some appetite to hold China's feet to the fire. So my, my final question then is how you would advise the incoming Biden administration to devise a sanctions and export control policy towards China that would minimize any unintended negative impact on both US and international companies. Let's start with Ali. There's been a lot of um, last-minute actions by the Trump administration that has caused disruption both in both in the export control market and the financial markets. The Biden administration will have to think about a way it can roll back some of these last-minute actions without seeming to be weak on China. So we don't expect an immediate rollback of any of these prohibitions, but what what the Biden administration can start doing, obviously, is where there's affected parties, um, it can start issuing um, 
licenses, um, whether they're general licenses or specific licenses to ease the burden or ex- extending the period till when the sanctions come in place. So we'll see some, some kind of intermediary steps to ease the burden on the business community and perhaps some kind of signals that they're not looking at increasing the number of entities um, um, that are subject to these lists at this current time. So in effect, for the initial period, freezing, freezing the landscape as it is now. I agree with Ali that we're not going to see something immediate, but I think one of the benefits in, in some perverse way is that they've seen now the results of some of the extreme policies that some people in the administration and in the government have advocated for years. And they've now seen the results and they'll be able to study those results and say, look, this didn't work. It's not just a theoretical failure. It is an actual failure. It did not achieve the result. And they can point to a real life example. And then there might be some that did work. And they'll say, great, we're going to you know, fine tune this one a bit and make it more effective. And, and we're going to try and build on that. You know, this is sort of an extreme position that we've been putting in these last uh, four years. Um, that the Biden administration can learn from and use as a very real life uh, example of, of what works and, and doesn't work. And I think that's in some ways going to be an advantage for the Biden administration in, in putting forth the, the policies when, when they've studied those results. Great. Well, Wendy, Ali, thanks for joining me today. No, thank you, Vincent. And, you know, we appreciate, uh, you know, the, the opportunity to talk about this because it is an area that um, the more folks are cognizant of how it will affect them, um, you know, and, and that there are ways to, to deal with the, um, these regulations in a way that allows you to do business um, and continue to do business. Uh, I think you know that's that's a huge advantage that you're providing to to your listeners. And thank you for listening to the China Law Podcast, a weekly discussion of China's business and financial sectors from a legal perspective. Make sure to check out our website, ChinaLawInPractice.com, to keep up to date with the latest Chinese legal and business news through our in-depth analyses, including contributions from our network of leading lawyers and in-house counsel, as well as full access to a searchable database of English full translations of PRC legislation going back 33 years. We'll be back next week with another special annual review episode, this time looking at key changes to China's arbitration landscape in 2020. Stay tuned. Thanks again for listening.